0: Hey Rockheads, stop working on your monitor tan and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 465 with guests Roman Schindlauer and Mason Seskin, recorded live Tuesday, June 30th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first class customer service online at www.telerik.com And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who thinks Paula Abdul should be a contestant, Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. Boy, are you lucky. (laughs) (laughs) You're lucky. (laughs) <laughs> I, i'm lucky i don't know what possessed me to say that but i just feel i feel lucky today and maybe you should too i don't know what it is there's something the something about summertime in new england it's just a wonderful thing and the weather we get so little good weather yeah, relatively speaking so we enjoy it when we're we're when it's happening when it's, it's happening we enjoy it and we feel lucky yeah so uh what else is going on man um I, you know what I'm gonna do tomorrow? What are you gonna do? Getting tomorrow? on a plane to Ireland. How good for you! Vacation, about a week and a half. Just time away. Taking any kids with you? No, no, no. Going with a group of people from the pub. Uh oh. Yeah. Are you going whiskey tasting? Uh, pretty much. It's it's <laughs> gonna be, <laughs> it's a pub filled vacation. Let's put it that
2: way. From one pub to the next. Yeah, it's a pub hopping vacation. It's a drinking contest that lasts ten days. Yeah,
1: we're gonna drink and hang out with the IRA. Nice. Going to be nice. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get right into Better No Framework because nothing goes better with guns than whiskey <laughs> <laughs> and Guinness. Guinness and guns. All right, what do you got? Uh, today, I thought I would pay a little, uh, give a little service to those who are writing their own compilers. Oh, really? Because you know.
2: It's got to be somebody.
1: Every once in a while, a Scott Hanselman shows up and says, I think I'll write a compiler. And this is the system.runtime.compilerservices namespace, which provides functionality for compiler writers who use managed code to specify attributes and metadata that affect the runtime behavior of the CLR. Okay. So if you're running a compiler, you want to be checking out system.runtime.compilerservices. Awesome. all there. (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea what it takes to write a compiler. I didn't I skipped that class in college. I'm
2: just and, kind uh, of staggered of everything that's in the framework, you know.
1: It's just ridiculous, the stuff that's in there. Yeah, no kidding. It goes on and on and on. Strong box of T. Infrastructure holds a reference to a value.
2: Okay. Okay. That's the definition
1: of that strong box. Okay.
2: What you got? I got an email in reference to a Better Know Framework. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Hi, Richard and Carl. I've been listening to your show since January 2008 when I followed a link from the MSDN website, and I think it is absolutely brilliant. Awesome. I find the show not only informative but also entertaining, and the Better Know Framework, I love the jokes that kick off the show, <laughs> and since hearing how Carl counts after having tequila, one tequila, two tequila, three tequila, floor, <laughs> I've decided to stay away from that.
1: Actually, that was a uh, George Carlin reference. That was on the day that I learned that he died. So there you go. We paid a little homage to the Carlin Meister.
2: Hmm. I've just downloaded show number 461, and I'm listening to it now, but I thought I should send you a bit of info about a timer that Carl left out. Oh, I read this email. This was cool. Yeah, he mentioned the system.windows.timer and the timer. but there is one other which you can use called system.threading.timer. Yeah, the
1: threading timer.
2: Yeah, this works. This timer works a little differently from the others, and it doesn't raise events between intervals, but it calls directly into your code using a callback. Hmm. You also cannot stop it. You will have to call dispose on it. Setting oh, it to nothing or null in C-sharp will not stop the events from coming, and if you have released the reference without disposing, the only way to stop the callbacks is to force a garbage collection.
1: <laughs> well, wondering- why wouldn't you use it?
2: I'm just wondering how he knows this.
1: <laughs> yeah, ask me how I know. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> Having started with the gotchas, I must say it's a very powerful and useful timer. It is a lightweight version of the system, dot timers, dot timer, and is also very accurate and good for long-running programs. Sweet. And that is from uh, Fadze from Harare, Zimbabwe. Yeah. Sounds like we're shipping a mug to Zimbabwe. Oh, boy. (laughs) Mm. And if you've got any questions or ideas, concerns, uh, comments on Better Know a Framework or anything else in the show, send us an email, at at franklins.net.
1: Our guests today are Roman Schindlauer and Basim Seskin. Roman is a program manager in the Microsoft SQL data and storage platform. After finishing his PhD in artificial intelligence at the University of Vienna, he joined Microsoft in Redmond in 2007. Following a brief stint in the Query Optimizer group of SQL Server... Ah, Richard, Query Optimization. Uh Uh-huh. You're a cup of tea. Indeed. He is currently working on the Microsoft platform for complex event processing. Basim is a principal architect in the Microsoft SQL Server engine team. He oversees architecture and design of the Microsoft platform for complex event processing. Basim is a Microsoft veteran with more than 15 years' experience working for the company... 13 of them in the Microsoft SQL Server team in Redmond. Most people know Basim for integrating the .NET CLR runtime into Microsoft SQL Server, which is one of the key features that shipped with SQL Server 2005. Welcome, Roman. Welcome, Basim.
3: Hello. Thanks for having us.
1: Oh, thanks for being on. We're honored. That was quite an accomplishment.
2: I see some origins here. You guys are both SQL Server team members, or at least were.
0: That is true.
4: Um, strictly speaking, we are still in the SQL Server organization. Um, but, yeah, a lot of uh, our team members are uh, former uh, query optimi- optimizer and uh, SQL engine front-end people.
2: Well, I don't immediately equate complex pro- event processing with SQL Server, but uh, I guess there's a relationship here somehow. Well, let's define complex event processing.
4: Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, the... the, the uh, link might not be uh, obvious, but guess what? You know, the ideas still apply, right? Uh, so in the relational world, we have relations. We have operators, uh, you know, that take one or more relations, do computations over them, and output another relation, right? The idea is very similar. You know, the operators we have in the relational world are, you know, join, top-key, filter, project. Um, And the relational algebra has been around for quite a while, right? It's been around, I don't know, since uh, CJ date, 1970s. And we learned a a lot about, you know, optimization techniques, uh, about how to build systems, incorporating relational algebra. Uh, And... In the event world, in the complex event processing world, we have events and we have, you know, we looked at our customer requirements, what they are doing. We looked at different verticals, uh, manufacturing, financials, uh, monitoring, uh, uh, clickstream analysis. The kind of operations that they were doing uh, was somewhat similar, you know. They, they wanted to be able to filter. Uh, they wanted to be able to correlate different event streams, they wanted to be able to um, see heavy hitters, and they wanted to aggregate their right. streams, which, if you look at it a bit more closely, it is somewhat similar to uh, operations we are doing in the relational world, right?
1: Well, it sounds so so you're basically uh, analyzing queries for how complex you think they are, therefore, how long you think they'll run, and that helps in scheduling them. Is that the the main idea?
4: Um, right. We essentially took the relational algebra, enhanced it with uh, temporal semantics. you know in our algebra, every event has uh, time, you know it has a start time and a valid time. Uh, and we enhance yeah. we enhance uh, the operators with some uh, uh, streaming kind of operators, things like windowing operators, uh, so that you can do. There's a somewhat uh, conceptual difference between the traditional relational database processing and complex event processing. In the traditional uh, database uh, processing world, you know you have more or less static data. And people have uh, dynamic queries coming and uh, com- doing computations over the snapshots of more or less static data, right? In the complex event processing world, the roles are reversed somewhat. You have more or less static queries, continuous queries, if you will, that are operating uh, over really fast-changing data. Um, the- Response times uh, are vastly different, you know, in the complex event processing. Our customers require sub-millisecond response times. Uh, queries are always running. Uh, this is somewhat different from the traditional database processing.
3: You know, people try to um, accommodate uh, relational databases for um, CEP problems, for so complex event processing problem um, problems and tasks and i think there were two main obstacles they discovered first of all you have a performance problem as soon as you have transactional databases you are naturally bound by by transactional semantics and and the relational algebra in terms of how many inserts you can do per second and and how how the data rate that you can read from a relational database in terms of throughput. Um, that was one obstacle that people realized when they dealt with um, high frequency, high data rates in the real-time event processing domains. And the other problem was that There is this intrinsic feature of time when you deal with a complex event processing in real time. You always want to take timestamps and and time periods into account when you specify your calculations and your queries. And the relational algebra did not provide any intrinsic functionality for that. You would have to encode time just as another column in your, in your relational tables, and then write your queries in a way so that you take those timestamps or periods into account. Now, in a, in a complex event processing uh, system, you want to deal with, with time in an intrinsic implied way that is provided by the semantics, by the, by, the, by the algebra of the event processing system in the first place.
1: So you're trying to infer bigger events by looking at smaller events? Are you trying to infer a context?
3: That, that, would be, that would be one task that you are looking at, say, atomic events, and then you want to uh, aggregate them or join them in a way so that you can infer additional knowledge based on, on those input events and derive further events from a number of, of incoming events, just as you would aggregate uh, or join in the relational world. You You would have the same task and use cases in the event processing world.
2: So I'm trying to set this in the context of sort of a typical application we were looking at here because it feels like there's a real-time component here. Speed is of the essence?
4: Um, Right. Real-time was a major requirement from all of the verticals, uh, all of the customers that we're talking about. Um, Right. There are some financial institutions, for example, that are doing black box uh, algorithmic trading. Right, and they are making their money uh, on like on pennies essentially, and speed is so important to them. Uh, they move their uh, machines into the uh, exchanges literally. We have few customers who did this, despite all the security considerations of having you know their their data inside the data center. It is so important for them to have timely response time for their uh, algorithmic. Uh, Uh, trading systems, uh, they go to extremes. So uh, near real-time requirement is is very important. Uh, You know, consider algorithmic trading is one uh, or intrusion detection into your network, for example. You know, you want to know as it's happening. Or suppose you are looking over click streams, uh, from a web, right? You know, your customers are clicking on your website, uh, and you are, you want to be able to tell that they, they are searching for pizza or looking for a particular product so that you can find appropriate uh, coupons or, uh, the, or you can decide the next page to show them in this time as it's happening uh, so that you can react to uh, it. Events as they're happening. So, uh, latency is very important for complex event processing customers.
2: So, I mean, now I sort I feel more like I got a, a database feel to it because this almost feels like OLAP just faster.
4: Um, that's a very good observation. So, you know, a, a very typical scenario is, uh, you, you have your, you know, data, data uh, mining system, data warehouse in the back end, right? And suppose you are looking right. at click streams or you are looking at trading patterns and uh, you use your data ma- mining tools and figure out some particular pattern on historical data. Then what you do is you take those rules and implement them as, you know, real time queries and put them in front of the system as they're happening so that you can recognize such rules as they're happening. For example, uh, if I notice a particular W pattern on a stock, you know, uh, caused it to go up from historical data, I take this rule, put it in front, and recognize that uh, as it is happening, and you know, take action on it essentially. Right. Um, but as a side note, we are looking at. Uh, I'm not sure about the, you know, uh, first version, but uh, real time. Data mining, real-time data mi- mining is definitely an interesting problem.
3: Yeah, and, and if you look at how OLAP is traditionally done, you usually have an, an ETL process that runs overnight, where you uh, right. extract the data from from your um, from your old TV databases, you build your cubes, and then eventually you end up with your OLAP database, and then you have your typical reporting queries. Which might take seconds in the best case, maybe even minutes. It's still acceptable in, in that domain. Um, imagine you would, um, you would basically transform that pattern of, of extracting, transforming and loading the data and then querying it into something much more seamless and much more real time oriented where you continuously have an ETL process that basically happens as the data comes in. And then you have. You're reporting queries not as ad hoc queries, which might take mi- minutes or even more, but which are standing queries that deliver their results as the data comes in all the time. So it's, we, we see a paradigm change there towards a more real-time, low-latency um, OLAP querying behavior.
2: Well, the thing that's interesting to me about data mining is that it finds associations in data that you didn't expect. So this is not just, I want you to watch these three things and tell me if any of them is out of whack. This is finding new causal relationships. Right,
3: right. And that, again, is kind of a cycle that that customers might want to go through, you have your um, real-time calculations in place uh, in your operational system reacting on the incoming data, and then you have um, historical data that you continuously mine to find new calculations, new KPIs. And as soon as you are satisfied with uh, new ways to mine your data, you might just take those calculations and put them into your operational system uh, to to have um, new KPIs and new calculations in, in your running system so that you always have this cycle of mining, mining for new knowledge, basically mining for new queries and then putting those queries into place.
2: Although Generally when I think about mining and discovering KPIs and so forth, this is more of an offline task. This is managing the company better.
4: Right, it is. But what do you do with this as you find those rules, right? You know, suppose you, you recognize some patterns uh, you know uh, after the fact right, you are doing offline uh, analysis of your data, then how do you make use of this? Wouldn't it be nicer, you know, suppose uh, you know you notice know a series of events uh, called, you know, issue with the productivity, then what do you do? Wouldn't it be nicer you notice know as uh, as it is happening, right?
2: Right, yeah. We have
4: a scenario in, uh, in manufacturing. Uh, it's called condition-based management. You know, uh, suppose you have those very capital-intensive, in- in- expensive machines, things like, you know, uh, iron or aluminum smelters and things like that. Uh, what they typically do is, uh, as those uh, devices malfunction in the past, they look at their signals, you know, what kind of signals I got from different parts of the machine, and they data mine this to decide, okay, following set of signals seems to cause the machine to break down, and they continue, they monitor this now continuously, and whenever they see this particular pattern, they do just-in-time maintenance of the machine because, you know, they data mine the fact that previously particular set of signal sequences causes this uh, malfunction. So, yes, you know, you did data mine currently uh, after the fact, and who knows in the future, we, we, we might be able to data mine it uh, real time as well. Then you take those rules, put them in front and recognize patterns as they are happening rather than after the fact so that you can respond to them.
2: Wow, that's pretty ambitious. It's it's impressive stuff. It reminds me of i worked on a project using uh, analysis services to monitor a production line uh, because they were finding that by the time the components got to test and they started having repeated failures, they now had several hundred of them in the line that had that failure. And so they were trying to come up with ways to check earlier and to recognize failure sooner, so that they shut the line down with less failed components. This sounds like exactly the tool I needed six years ago. Where have you guys been? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, you know what people do usually in uh, in in those manufacturing domains when they don't have the facilities for this kind of condition based management or maintenance is to just shut down the equipment every couple of months or every couple of weeks. But, um, Still there, you you might lose revenue because it might not have been necessary to shut down the equipment so early, or you we might still lose some equipment because uh, there was an, an error condition or a failure earlier than expected. And then it's uh, it's a huge investment because the transformer or the smelter that's an investment of billions of dollars. And you want to do anything you can to keep it up, keep it run up and running as long as possible, but just not too long to so that it fails.
2: There's a part of this that feels like that sort of fuzzy logic modeling, neural networky kind of stuff, but is that is that related to this?
4: Um well currently our operators are, are uh, they closely resemble the relational operators, the regular SQL operators that, that you have. You know, we have join, we have project, we have top K, we have filter, we have aggregations. In addition to the this Whenever, you know, so you know that the relational algebra is very expressive and our algebra is very expressive as well. But for the cases that it might not, you know, meet your needs, we have the concept of user defined operators, user defined aggregators, uh, and uh, you can escape to CLR.net anytime you like uh, using those mechanisms or static function calls. So uh, if you have very specific needs that does a particular, you know, function, such as neural networks. Yes, you could do this with uh, user-defined operators. But uh, our queries consist of, you know, uh, from uh, system-supplied operators' point of view, regular SQL operators. You can express anything uh, uh, that you can express
2: in SQL. So is this actually an extension to SQL Server?
4: Uh, No, it's it's a separate product. It's It's a separate engine, but the operators are very similar. Again, we learn, you know, we have, as you noticed, we have histories in SQL Server. We learn from our experiences, and we took our uh, experiences and optimization techniques and brought them into the uh, complex ima- uh, event processing system, you know, we can do things like global local aggregation and all other kind of things, uh, tricks that uh, we do in SQL Server. This is a separate
3: binary.
2: Okay. And are, is this going to be a product? Like is it in beta or CTP? Where is it at right now?
3: Um, currently, we are starting our CTP program. Uh, so there will be a public beta um, to download at the end of July, beginning of August. That's our CTB2. That's the first public beta.
2: Which is about when this show is being published.
3: Right, right, yes. Um, so that's the first time that people will be able to download something. Um, the product is, is public already. It went public at uh, TechEd, where we presented it and had a little demo. Now, people will be able to download the bits uh, with CTB2. We will then have uh, some more pre-releases along the line, um, of the remaining year, CTP3 around fall, and eventually we will release the product um, together with SQL Server 2008 R2 um, at some point um, in 2010, as far as I know, and uh, so that the, the release is aligned with SQL Server, and we will most likely ship on the same media but it will not be part of the of the SQL setup process, as it seems. It's a separate product, a separate binary. There is no technical dependency between uh, SQL Server and our CP engine, uh, and this is why uh, we basically have our own uh, product and our own binary.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's fairly unique in this context of SQL Server. So you would tend to run this on its own hardware, and it doesn't have to communicate with SQL Server? It, uh,
4: if, if you have SQL server, we, we could definitely use it as you know for input to our data streams or output of our data streams or for reference data lookup. but strictly speaking uh, it's not necessary. You could run it on on, uh, on a separate machine and in the near future
3: you should be able to run it on your phones as long as you have .NET, as long as you run on the .NET stack, you can run the CP engine.
2: Awesome. Uh, how kind of development are we going to need to do then to work with this? Or is it is it configuration or is it actually code? It's
3: pretty much uh, developer-oriented. Um, we will provide... The product consists of a couple of DLLs, which basically... Represents the CP platform. This is also why we call our product the, the C B platform. And you will be able to build your own application on top of those DLLs. We provide a specific API um, for people who want to write adapters, which represent the input and output uh, interfaces to the to and from the CP engine. And you will be able to um, write your actual queries, your calculations that. Are supposed to run in the CP engine um, in Link. So this is fully built on top of .NET using um, the .NET languages, uh, specifically Link and C# sharp to uh, implement your adapters and and your queries, and then you can seamlessly build your own application around that, which just integrates the CP platform and the CP engine. And that, there we have different um, deployment and integration um, scenarios. You could take the CP engine and um, integrate that in your custom application process, or you can use the CP engine in a separate process, which exposes its um, manageability interface through a web service, and talk to that separate process through the web service from your own custom application. Wow, cool. So it's heavily built on, on .NET, and it's geared towards .NET developers. Right. So
4: if you can, you know, write link queries and, you know, use any of the languages that link is supported, C-sharp, F-sharp, VB, you should be able to use our system.
2: Yeah, I'm just getting my head around yeah. the kind of projects I want to write besides the ones I've already considered. But uh, So what's the code look like? What are you writing?
4: Um, so, the, you know... The, 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 the code looks uh if you if you are familiar with sql if you are familiar with link you our uh, yeah. development environment will look very familiar to you uh, a sample query would could uh, look like from uh stock tickers s uh, where s. Dot, uh, ticker name equals msft uh uh select new um, price, for example. That, that right. would be just a very simple
1: query. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. If you're a Silverlight or WPF developer, you've heard that having a single code base for your web and Windows user interface is becoming a hot topic. How about building a Silverlight application and then reusing the XAML and the code behind for a WPF application? Your customers will enjoy the identical user experience, and you will enjoy some free time as you have to write the code for both applications only once. This is not a scenario from the future. The guys from Telerik have developed a line-of-business demo application that shows you how to do it all. The application uses Telerik Silverlight and WPF suites, which represent two almost identical tool sets for building rich web and desktop applications. Both are derived from the same code base and share a common API, allowing nearly complete code reuse between WPF and Silverlight development. you got to check it out. Telerik.com slash sales dashboard. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks.
2: So that's, I mean, I, that's a link query. So that means somewhere I've got an adapter right. to this stock ticker stream of data. So that sounds like the real thing I need to write is the adapter. Right.
3: So the, the adapter framework is, um, it, it's interesting how we will interact with, with our potential customers regarding adapters. Uh, what we What we think is that we have the ability to provide some adapters out of the box. Very generic adapters. Right. For instance, reading and writing from and to text files in the form of comma-separated value files, which is very generic as a, as a data source or data destination, as well as reading and writing from a relational database like SQL using standard SQL queries and whatever kind of connection string you need for that. Um, whatever goes beyond that, whatever goes um, towards very... Vertical-specific, domain-specific adapters, there we, at least at the moment, just lack both the resources as well as the knowledge to be able to properly implement domain-specific adapters like um, stock-ticker feeds that um, can read a certain format of financial data, um, um, real-time feeds, or in the manufacturing world, read from specific devices, from specific sensors. Um, that we rather leave up to the to the, the customers, to the ISVs who want to develop their custom applications um, for specific input sources, uh, event sources, or to um, customers who just want to provide the adapters themselves. Maybe device vendors uh, have an interest in providing adapters for um, their devices, so that that other people can build their CP uh, applications on on top of their adapters.
2: Yeah, and this sounds like a good place for a developer Mm. to sit. And and I thought right away that the manufacturer scenario is the one that's going to make a lot of adapters. If you're taking feeds from all of these different sources of how stuff is made, that's that's a lot of data sources to consolidate.
3: Right, and usually they are very proprietary. Those are... um, very well-established vendors of specific devices uh, which have their own proprietary data formats and um, for those vendors or the ISVs that use the devices it would be very straightforward to uh, take that uh, specific data format and build their own adapter around that. For instance, uh, considering OPC as a a standard um, data format in the manufacturing world it should be straightforward to just build an adapter around OPC using using uh, OPC data and then transforming that into our canonical event format so that you're able to feed that into a CP engine. And uh, having such an adapter would, would target already a lot of uh, potential customers in the, in the manufacturing domain.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This time last year, uh, in July of 2008, we did a show on OPC. I think it was uh, show 357. Yep. and uh, yeah, they—that's a whole set of standards for interfacing. So there could be a set of OPC interfaces to adapt into this that just allow you a fabulous level of instrumentation.
4: Right. Yes, and that
3: would be very nice. Yes. <laughs> so, so thats one side of the story. We now talked about the link query as the actual um, um, syntax to. Express the, the actual standing query. Then we have the adapters that need to be implemented on the input and the output side. Um, furthermore, there is a there is an API around everything else you need to get from from uh, you know the concept of an application to to the to the actual running uh, um, application in terms of uh, instantiating the adapters, then defining your query. Binding. That's, this, that's how we call the step of taking the actual um, the, the query itself um, and bind it to the input source and and the uh, the output of the stream the, the stream destination so that you have an entity that you can actually instantiate in your application that will then live basically live in the CP engine as a standing query and for all those. For all those metadata entities like adapters and and theories and bindings, we provide um, an, an object model which lets you define your own uh, CP application embedding the server within a couple of lines. So um, you will be able when you use this um, this API to write your CP application from start to end, probably within 10 or 15 lines. Um, uh, using that using that object model to um, to accomplish what you want to do on the input-output side and uh, regarding finding your uh, event sources and things to the actual query.
2: Now, I could see Link being able to pull up these different bits of data and, and give me a common querying interface to all the data I've got streaming in, but where does the mining part come into the equation? Like, how do I create that mining model?
3: Well, that's... Depends on how you specify the input adapter for, say, historical query, because that's basically what what mining traditionally means. You have a recorded set of of events of of real-time data, and then you want to mine that data that you persist somewhere else. So in that case, you would just need the proper input adapter reading from um, uh, either a specific historian or a common relational database to kind of replay that former real-time data back into the CP engine and then apply the query, which is unaware of whether this is is basically uh, past or historical data or whether this is real-time data. So this is where right. our binding concept uh, comes into play, that for the query itself, it's uh, not relevant where the data comes from. And the binding only happens at runtime, at instantiation time. When you bind the the, historic, the historical input adapter to your query, that you would use the same way for a real-time data feed. Um, Roman mentioned, we don't currently have a built-in
4: support for uh, data mining. Um, In the future, you know, we are looking into it. But uh, as he mentioned, uh, all the times we use in our uh, event streams are application times. So uh, as he mentioned, you can do what-if analysis kind of scenarios. You know, you you could write a query, read from historical uh, streams, see what kind of results you get, change your query, run it again, and... You can use uh, Microsoft complex Event processing uh, platform to run what-if scenarios to test your hypothesis about, you know, okay, does this uh, pattern hold uh, on this piece of historical
3: data? Yeah, Basing just mentioned an interesting point um, that I did not um, mention before. The differentiation between system time and application time. Um, we only consider consider application time in our queries, meaning the time that is actually included in the event, the time when the actual event data happens. And this application time is just, would just be, um, stored away if you, if you historize your data. And if you replay the data, you will read the same timestamps again. So, um, if you replay the data, you will get the same results as if you, um, uh, streamed it in real time, uh, because we, we strongly differentiate between the concept of application data, which is the actual events. Data, the data when when uh, the, the event time um, as opposed to the system time which is the time of the, uh, the, the clock of the system where the CP engine is running. And this differentiation is very important as soon as we look um, into out of order data or uh, data that arrives late because there we, we, we have to clearly make a difference between the, the application timestamps of the events as opposed to the system time of the CP engine.
2: Right. And and ordering the data is part of this whole equation. I, I almost feel like we've got a description of a neural net model here where I could take a set of baseline data and say, this is sort of the common set of values for this, and then apply it to later sets of data to say, show me where things are anomalous.
4: Right. Uh, this is one of our uh, our target scenario, scenarios. Anomaly detection. Another uh, manufacturing example, you know, they have this concept of a... A golden batch suppose they are producing shampoo or chocolate or whatever what right. they do is you know they try different combinations of chemicals or they try different pressure different heat and record the you know once they decided that they got a good product they recorded all the signals and they are trying to match those signals continuously this is right. the you know uh trying to match uh, Anomaly detection case, I guess. If something goes wrong, that you know something uh, diverges, they know that they have a problem with the product. Another one is uh, trying to find similar patterns, as in the uh, algorithmic trading case. You know, hey, in the past I've seen this pattern. You know, the stock went up. Can I? Am I seeing the same pattern as well? Or uh, li- likewise. But I, I, I understand where you are going with this uh, neural neural network uh, idea. One nice thing about our system is that it's perfectly composable. You know, all our operators take one or more streams, and they output streams as well. And this is true of the query. Meaning right. query takes one or more streams and outputs one or more streams. So you can actually build very nice feedback systems, meaning your output could be coming back to your own query uh, to uh, make progress on a particular problem that you are trying to solve.
2: Right, and that, that whole replay model is becomes a learning model pretty easily when it becomes feedback. Yes. So I think we've got these different pieces here. We've got the adapters drawing data in, you've got the querying engines to associate them. What, what are the other analytical pieces here?
4: Uh, could you elaborate, please?
2: Or just the, are there other bits we want to look at as far as, I, I guess there's different kinds of aggregations, um, ways to combine data?
4: Right. So we, we have your regular, uh, you know, min, max, uh, counts, average, uh, kind, kind of uh, aggregations out of the box. But we have a, uh, we have a SDK that lets you write any user-defined aggregate that you'd like, you know, such as uh, time-weighted averages, volume-weighted averages, uh, standard deviation, or any other exotic average that you, uh, exotic aggregate that you might have in
3: mind. And aggregates usually operate over windows. That's what you want to do in complex event processing. So the the, the usual, the common way to to uh, define an aggregation in your in your query is first define a window of a certain um, length, of a certain time span, and then apply the aggregation on top of that. For instance, give me the average of my power consumption reading of a specific device over the last 10 minutes, right? So um, right. you would just do this, you would express it in the same way in Link, where we provide um, the, the proper extensions to apply windows on top of streams, and then apply aggregations on top of those windows. So that's a very common use case to first define a window and then apply an aggregation on top of that window. Um, What goes beyond that is an operator that is very specific to complex event processing that does not exist, um, at least not in the same form in relational databases, the operator that we call group and apply, which is somewhat related to the, the grouping, the grouping operator in in relational databases, but additionally also um, applies a specific query subtree to each group separately, uh, and still preserves basically uh, the incoming event stream. So the way group and apply works: you define a, a grouping function, which does nothing else than partitioning the incoming stream according to that grouping function, and that. Um, is uh, usually just one of the columns, one of the, of the payload fields of the incoming event, you might want to partition by the ID of a, of a device so that can, you get all the readings from the same device into the same partition. And then you apply whatever subquery you want to specify um, separately for those partitions, like aggregations,
2: for instance.
4: And this operator lends itself very nicely to scenarios like map reduce or partitioning your data.
2: Well, it's, you, right away I sort of think, oh, we well, could do time groupings there, but it's naturally windowed anyway. But, yeah, geographical distribution or, uh, you know, certain data set controls, those would all be natural groupings you'd want to break up. And, and almost like subtotals, you want to be able to have a, a running total on a given set of items for that match that criteria and then break it and do another set below.
4: Exactly. Except that, you know, in SQL, you, you are only allowed to do an aggregate with a group, right? You can't do anything else. Right. In our algebra, you can do arbitrary uh, subqueries in your groupings.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the running total is a classic SQL problem. And uh, it sounds like this would do that quite naturally. Right. Guys, this is hairy, geeky data stuff. I like it a lot, but I I wonder how much it's going to fit with uh with many of our listeners.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm still in the f- trying to comprehend what was said in the first ten minutes of this. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, let's summarize. Let's summarize. And what you basically have is you have a lot of inputs coming into the system that are feeding data from uh you know that that aren't necessarily related to each other. Right. And then you've got these. Uh, Input adapters that move that stuff into the into the system, yeah. and then you have output adapters that take your queries and route the, and sort of I don't know aggregate them to devices. I guess
4: uh, output adapters you can you know you can do whatever it, it it's the bridge between our our events event format and you know the. The final output that you'd like, you know, it could be, you could be outputting it to an Excel chart, you could be sending an alert uh, email, you could be...
1: That's on the other side of the query, though. Basically, you're doing a query against your engine. And then if you want to, you can use an output adapter.
2: Exactly. After that. Yeah. Now, Typically, aren't we dealing with such massive amounts of data that we don't really want to try and load it all into memory before we work on it? We're trying to do this in a sort of a streaming, real-time way.
4: Exactly. Uh, the, the, the kind of scenarios we are looking at, uh, again, uh, manufacturing, clickstream analysis, you know, uh, this, our system is currently in uh, production in, in some Microsoft uh, properties, and they are, they are uh, processing half a billion events per day, right? This is a lot of data, right. you know. Uh, and
2: what,
1: you guys don't have 100 gigs of RAM on your system? <laughs> no? Am I the only one? All right. um,
4: so, as, as uh, Roman mentioned before, uh, the idea is to, we are all in memory, you know, uh, if you are going to have sub-millisecond latencies, if you are going to process hundreds of thousands of events per second, we can't afford to hit the disk, uh, it's all in memory, you can kind of look at this as like query processing on the wire as it's happening. You extract your insights. you know, right. data is passing by you, and you have this you know, queries, as the data is passing by, you are extracting your information, your insight from them.
3: And you might just use it not, not only for complex querying or complex processing of events, but just to reduce the data rate in order to be able to store it in the first place. If you have a data rate of a couple of hundred thousand data items or events per second, and you just can't keep up with uh, putting all the data in a relational database uh, only to be able to process it afterwards. Um, maybe part of the processing is a filtering, which you might want to do in real time to reduce the data rate in the first place so that you can reduce it um to be able to store it in a relational database and then do some historical processing after the fact. And then you just use uh, the input adapter that properly transforms that into the TP format, and you use a relational output adapter that writes the, the reduced um, amount of events after the initial simple filtering into a relational database.
1: So here's a tangent, here's a tangent for you. You can come back to that point. What uh, happens to the product when everybody's well? When you're running, when you've replaced all your SCSI RAID systems with SSDs?
4: Um, this is a this is a very uh, very interesting question. We are looking at it in, in multiple areas.
1: Uh, Does the code become the bottleneck?
2: I still think the volume of the data is the thing that's killing you. You know, if you've got a billion events arriving a day. You just can't afford the disk space. I don't care how big your drives are. And they don't mean anything. You want the aggregates of them anyway. Mm.
4: Right. And you can't, you know, you have to be real fast, right? The the particular, you know, somebody clicks on a web page, you need to be able to know what the next web page is you are going to display, uh, depending on some, you know, rules or queries that you you have. Uh, Right. I mean... Nobody looks at logs, right? It takes a long time, and you don't get your responses, you know, Why look at logs after the fact? When you can extract this information as it's happening, that you can't respond right there.
2: Yeah, you're taking the whole, uh, you know, people who looked at this book also looked at this one and this one thing much further. Right. And in much bigger volumes.
4: Mm-hmm. I, I uh, Regarding your, hey, geeky data things, you, you know, it's a platform, right? It, it all depends uh, what what you do with it. You know, we have this very fun, interesting queries, for example, that it's very easy for us to say, okay, uh, what are the top ten uh, search words on, say, some search site in the last ten seconds in a sliding window kind of query? It's only... Three, four lines of complex demand processing system query. Or, you know, you, you, you could imagine another query that uh, subscribes to, you know, ten thousand, uh, technology blogs and figures out the same. You know, what are people talking about? What is the top, top ten popular, uh, subjects in those blogs? Uh, it's only three, four lines of query. You know, the, the power is there. It's a platform. Uh, it doesn't have to be DT. So suddenly that
2: becomes really easy to do. It's
4: not all about manufacturing or web clicks.
2: Yeah, it'd be fun to harness it to any large volume of data and just see what you can get from it.
4: And it's also very useful for scenarios where it's not practical to move that amount of data, right? In manufacturing scenario, we, we talked that, you know, there are... We get typically get our own machine. We are the big dog. We are our own process. We get all the memory, all the CPU usage. Then you have this data center monitoring kind of scenarios where they are actually running something else that's useful. You know, maybe it's SQL Server, maybe it's a file server, maybe it's some other application. And suppose you want to monitor, you know, network traffic or CPU usage or memory usage by a different application, they're... We are just a very small application, you know, uh, getting a lot of data about all this network traffic or uh, CPU usage or memory usage or uh, file usage and running our, you know, little queries, aggregating them and in all likelihood shipping them to another mother uh, CP system uh, somewhere else. So, uh, it can be used in many other uh, scenarios as well. Where where you have huge volumes of aggregate data and you require low, low latency,
2: CEP system works very well. So guys, have we missed anything people need to know about CEP before we wrap up? When's it going to be available?
3: Um, well, the public beta is the end of July, beginning of August. Um, that's our CTP tool. The uh, CTP stands for Community Technology Preview, if I remember correctly. So that these are all pre-release right. versions. There will be a CTP3 later this year. And eventually, uh, it will RTM um, at some point next
2: year. Okay. And be in the box with with uh, SQL Server 2008 R2. Right. 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 Yes. right.
1: And if you want to read the white paper, it's at shrinkster.com slash 17IT. 1, 7 Igloo Tango. Thanks guys.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
1: It sounds like a, a great product and I can't wait. We'll see you next time. On .net rocks. <music> .net rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering video, post-production, and podcasting services, online at www.pwop.com. Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft Development Technology with expert developers, online at www.franklins.net.